That's a high. That's a very high compliment that you give somebody. Absolutely. Um, the greatest baseball player that ever lived, Josh Gibson. What do you think? Amazing. The greatest combination of power and average this game has ever seen. Because lost in the tremendous power. It is almost mythical-like power. But as I tell my young mm -hmm. major league athletes, the power was very real. Was that Gibson was a great hitter. Not a good hitter. A great hitter. Lifetime batting average of three fifty four, And in head-to-head -head competition against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, hit over four twenty. What makes it even though right. even more remarkable, he was doing this as a catcher. Man, catchers don't do that. No, you get one right. other power or average, but rarely you get a combination of the two. And Josh wasn't a good catcher. He was a great catcher. Rifle long. He's throwing yeah. guys out from the crowd back in that era, had complete control of his pitching staff, called a great game. Good running catcher. Going to steal you 20, 25 bases or more to go with that big bat of his. And as I tell everybody, when I say big bat, man, I mean <laughs> big bat. 40 ounce, 41 inches. And when you look at the photo, he ain't choking up on the thing. <laughs> he got a grip down below the knob. As we said it from Jordan. It's like swinging a red foot. Yeah, no, as we said from Jordan, the man was just country strong. That's <laughs> right. One more time, set, and here comes the 2 2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now. And a fastball flung on him, hit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back, and it is. Get out the line, Brad, and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami, and the Mariners lead it 10 to 6. I don't believe it. From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson. From the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kurt Chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories. Want to welcome all of you uh, freaks into the fold this week. As my Seamhead Army continues to grow around the globe. From all my OG lieutenants who have pretty much followed my endeavors through the years. To, the, uh, to this wave of totally new Seamheads that is consistently growing and circling the wagons. I'm really, really, really digging the support of this grassroots passion project. I can't stress it enough how grateful I am. My goal in life before I step into the great beyond is to, well, number one, be a better father to my daughter. And number two, spread the gospel of baseball around the planet through incredible stories. And people ask me all the time, well, how can I help? Well, that's simple. I'm never going to charge you for the content here. 
I'm not ever going to Patreon or crowdsource you. I'm not going to hammer you with a bunch of commercials in the middle of shows. All I need, really, is for you to follow, share, subscribe, download. And I'll just show up on t- Tuesdays and keep it consistent like Tony Gwynn, baby. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or, well, you can go out to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Uh, if you're an Apple or Spotify user, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't skirt. All this stuff helps. Uh, don't ask me how, but that's what I'm told. So, look, hook a good brother up. Leave me stars and comments, and it's a done deal. want to thank everyone for the overwhelming response to the Polar Ground Show. And I do mean overwhelming. It is by far the most listened to first week show I've ever dropped, and... I got a range of takes about the stadium that that came my way because of it. The show response was great, but I'm going to be honest with you. Many people do not like Polo Grounds because of her quirkiness. And to be fair, I can respect that. I mean, you know, 275 feet, 8 inches to left field, 483 to center. It's it's a bit much. And, And I can understand the perception by some that this is not an MLB stadium. I think it's a fair attitude, and I respect that take on the surface. But I'm going to tell you, if there was ever a stadium I would want to experience a game in, it's Polo Grounds in Shaw Park. And as soon as I finish this time machine of mine, uh, you can be sure those are the first two stadiums I'm going to check out. Now, I did get a message uh, from Stephen in Anchorage, Alaska. And he told me he went to a game back in 1963 at Polo Grounds, one of 26 stadiums he has visited through the years, and he absolutely loved it. Said it was his favorite stadium he ever visited, and he was even telling me how he even saw Canada Corn home run hitting the upper deck roof and right field by Marty Keogh that day. And we were laughing because he called it something that I can't repeat on air, even on this platform. But he said it rose ever so slightly Above the Mets right fielder's head until it dinged up the first row of that overhang. And it's a funny, funny story. And I want to give that dude a shout out. Steve in Alaska. Thank you for joining my Seamhead Army. And I enjoy listening to your takes on baseball this week. Uh, again, a shout out to my audience. <laughs> you guys are progressively smashing my numbers right now. Each show bigger than the next. So. The pressure's on. I gotta keep you guys interested in the stories, right? So, it looks like the catcher is coming down. Uh, and I'm gonna call all aboard here. As this week, we're gonna go off the beaten path to uh, a bit here. And we're gonna try something new. This week... We'll be doing our first very biographical look at a Negro League superstar as we go under the hood in a deep case study on the slugging catcher, Josh Gibson. And two things before we start. Uh, We did do the Fleet Walker story, and that is in my vault the Backwards K Pod archive shows, but Fleet was before the Negro Leagues. In many ways, it was because of what happened to Fleet that precipitated the need for Negro League baseball. In the first place. And if you haven't heard that show, 
Well, have no fear. Go on over to DiamondStateJake.Popping.com and you'll find that Fleetwood Walker show in my archives. The second thing I need to point out is how much harder it is to do these Negro League shows. It, it's very apocryphal. There's missing data, records. You're basing your research on stories that are layered in fact and myth. And I thought to myself, I can't really tell these stories the same way Same way I tell the Clemente story or Branch Rickey story or even like the Gas House Gang and their multiple characters. While many of those guys are still before the majority of my audience's time, we still have written accounts, proper stats, maybe some video or audio that says, hey, this is real, this is what happened, and here's the proof. But, you know, Negro Leagues is different. We, we have to listen to those who are in the know and choose in our own minds whether we should validate this person's credibility or not. Which brings me to the realization that here's my challenge this week and bringing you the true testament of this iconic life. What if I was the only one alive on the planet who ever saw catcher Mike Piazza play? There's no video, no audio, no credible stats. And we can all pretty much agree that for most of us, He's the best offensive catcher in our lifetime. But if there's no video, no audio, no credible stats, how do I tell the story? Forget the records. No one's keeping stats, bro. At least none you can trust. And forget the PD rumors. No one cares enough to look again. Uh, again, no video, no newspaper stories, just a few grainy photographs that show only that a player named Mike Piazza once existed. So, again, how would I tell that story? And tell it so that you believe me. All his mammoth home runs, the time he put one out of Dodger Stadium, his huge home run that galvanized the country after the 9-11 attacks. How could I convince you just how remarkable Mike Piazza was if you never read a complete stat on him uh or saw video, or heard audio of his play, how do I convince you that he was the greatest hitting, uh, you know, power hitting catcher in Major League Baseball history? And, you know, look, the answer is simple. I can't. Not unless you're willing to believe. And it's the same here with Josh Gibson, as well as the myriad of other Negro League stars we'll be examining in the future. We know the things that we know about Josh, Buck, Satchel, Judy, Papa, and so on because of the continuous research by people who refuse to let these supernovas die. Men like Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum on 18th and Vine in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's who was on the soundbite with me at the very top of the show. And by the way, that's a great discussion that he and I had about a year and a half ago. You can find that on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page. And Josh was often referred to as the Black Babe Ruth, while Gibson fans would always correct the narrator and call Ruth the white Josh Gibson. In June of 67, a column in the Sporting News credited Josh with a blast that hit just two feet 
from the top of the wall, circling the outfield bleachers at Yankee Stadium, approximately 580 feet from home plate. Another two feet higher, and it's out on a Bronx sidewalk, possibly 700 feet away. Jack Marshall of the Chicago American Giants swore that Gibson hit a ball completely out of Yankee Stadium. Some accounts have Josh hitting anywhere between 800 and 1,000 home runs in his 16-year career. There exists no official source of data. Rare compilations of like scoreboards. These gaps exist on the historical record. The record-keeping was spotty, incomplete. So, the actual totals are unclear, non-standardized. And there are questions as to what constitutes a game, actually. Are we talking about only counting Negro League games, or are we talking the, the whole body of work from the league, Negro Leagues to the barnstorming you did versus the white major leagues, adventures around the world, especially in South America and Cuba, which we'll get onto later. The re- reality that his stats cannot be somehow compared between the Negro Leagues and pre-integration baseball. It's a shame, but it's really irrelevant. Josh Gibson, by so many accounts throughout time, is one of the greatest sluggers who ever lived, bottom line. Josh Gibson was born to Mark and Nancy Gibson in Buena Vista, Georgia, on or about December 21st, 1911. And He was named after his grandfather. And again, folks, for me, well, details are important, but not always available. No matter how deep I go into the rabbit hole sometimes, sometimes you're just going to come up with nothing. And that's especially true of these old Negro League ballplayers, especially the ones born in the Deep South in the early 20th century. And from what I can tell, Josh was the oldest of three siblings. His brother, Jerry, briefly pitched for the Cincinnati Tigers. And his little sister was six years younger than him. Not much more is known about the the siblings. Now, his father, Mark, was originally a sharecropper. And in 1923, he travels to Pittsburgh in search of a better life for his family. He would eventually work at the Carnegie, uh, Illinois Steel Company. And he would send money home for three years until he was able to move his family to Pennsylvania in 1926. The Gibsons bought a house on Strauss Street in the Pleasant Valley section of Pittsburgh. And they set about turning that into a home. And in my interview with Mr. Kendrick, I asked him why the Negro Leagues were so viable in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, these two states that had so many teams. And I was wondering, is it because, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, these were abolitionist-friendly states at the time. So I asked him, is that the reason why most of these teams, or why, uh, yeah, why these two states in particular had so many teams? And this is what he said. I noticed that Pennsylvania particularly would have three, four teams sometimes. Was this because of the Quaker population there, that they were abolitionist, abolitionist-friendly people during the Civil War? Would that be like 
one of the main reasons why you would have so many teams there. It had something to do with it, but the fact that you had those steel mills, those factory jobs, and so when we look at the migration that occurred after the Civil War, black folks left the South and migrated uh-huh. to the Midwest and that northern seaboard because they were looking for what I call industrialized opportunities, factory jobs. And, and so that is where you had a fairly significant concentration. So you start looking at Pennsylvania or right. Iowa in particular, they had a number of Negro League baseball uh-huh. teams. You know, over that period of 40 years in which these leagues operated. And I think that was part of the reason is that that migration of black folks to that part of the country after the Civil War. And you're, and from what I'm thinking, from what I'm hearing from you, that migration was largely because of, you know, blacks were trying to get away from the agricultural lifestyle that they had grown up in and were now trying to go into a more, um, you know, industry mechanical kind of deal. I totally understand that. Uh, and when he broke that down to me, uh, it made total sense. You know, I had always figured that it was just because, you know, these were, you know, abolitionist friendly people. But in actuality, and you see it here with Josh Gibson's family, the father, they grew up in Georgia. He was a sharecropper. He said, screw this. I'm done. I'm done being a a sharecropper. He moves north. He finds a job at the Carnegie, uh, Carnegie, Illinois Steel Company here. And within three years, he's sending away money to his family, and he's bringing them up to to Pittsburgh. And and when he broke it down like that, it made total sense. And here is the perfect example of what Mr. Uh, Kendrick is saying here, that people, blacks, moved north because of industrial factory jobs. And it's shown here as a fact. Now, uh, in Pennsylvania... Josh was in an electrical studies program, as electricity is the most dominant new technology of the time. At 13 years old, he's placed in a similar program at the Conroy uh, Pre-Vocational School in Pleasant Valley. And at 15, he drops out of school. He gets a job on an air brake manufacturing company to help support his family. He's already six foot one and 200 pounds. He's a strapping, capable young boy. He's working side by side with adult men doing heavy labor. And he would go to work at the Carnegie, Illinois steel plant as well, which left his evenings free for himself. He would go there, uh, he would go there and work after school. And then, you know, he had the evening to himself. And despite his size and natural athleticism, uh, you would think he would take to football, basketball, right? Now, he didn't like football. He wasn't a basketball fan. Uh, Instead, he gravitated to competitive swimming and, of course, baseball. At 16 years old, he joins his first formal uniformed Negro baseball team. Uh, they're sponsored by Gimbel's department store. Gimbel's thought enough of the kid that they would give him a job as an elevator operator to keep him on the team. And after doing some catching, Gibson actually settles in as a third baseman. So, the Gimbel's team, along with other amateur black teams, they became the Negro Greater Pittsburgh Industrial League, which consisted of teams of various steel companies like Pittsburgh Railways, uh, Pittsburgh Screw and Bolt. And these contests, who would actually draw fans and gamblers as well. One of those teams, 
the Pittsburgh bathhouse. It was able to recruit and uh, several additions, uh players from other teams and you know sponsors as well. They renamed the team to the Pittsburgh Crawfords. In fact, one of the sponsors of that team was the recently retired Hall of Fame shortstop uh, for the Pirates, Hannes Wagner. A local sporting goods store donated team gear, and voila, the Crawfords were born. And even with this foundation, the team might have folded due to lack of cash without the intervention of Gus Greenlee, who took control in 1926. And with the infusion of capital and commiserate talent, the Crawfords dominated both the Negro Industrial League as well as Pittsburgh's Recreational League that year. In 1927, Greenlee hires Hooks Tinker to manage the Crawls. Tinker recalls being at an All-Star game in Amon Field in 1928, and what he saw, it changed him forever. And he recalls, I had two of my All-Stars there, otherwise I wouldn't have been there. And that's when I saw Josh for the first time. He was playing third base, and he was mature in his actions. Uh, You never would have known he was only 16 years old then. He was built like sheet metal, so I signed him and brought him into the semi-pro picture. And Josh, for all his intimidating size, he was just this fun-loving and all-around decent human being. Next to hitting, the only thing he probably liked more was cracking jokes and eating ice cream. Just like this big kid at heart. And when I'm researching this, I'm thinking like Shaquille O'Neal when he first broke into the NBA as a rookie. This huge, lovable kid. Uh, You know, man-child. In 1928, Josh meets Helen Mason and falls head over heels in love with her. That February, the couple announced their first pregnancy. And a month later, on March 7th, 1929... The two were married in Macedonia Baptist Church in Pittsburgh. The pregnancy, it didn't endure, however, but Helen became pregnant again with twins in 1930. On August 11, 1930, Helen goes into premature labor. Her pregnancy aggravated an undiagnosed kidney condition, and by the time she reached the hospital, one of her kidneys had ruptured. Josh arrives a minute later, Uh, He arrives minutes later, only to learn that his beloved Helen had died after delivering the baby safely. The first one was Josh Jr., followed by his sister, Helen. And of course, Josh was inconsolable after the death of Helen. Deciding that he was neither fit nor ready to be a single father, he leaves the children with uh, Helen's parents, James and Margaret Mason, to care for them, and he was emotionally devastated. And those closest to Gibson, they say he never fully recovered emotionally from this trauma here. On the diamond, though, Josh was able to compartmentalize his sorrow and his anger. He played for the semi-pro Crawford Colored Giants in 1929 and 1930. And he's going around, he's earning money here and there, often performing before crowds of 5,000 or more as the main draw. And word of his star power inevitably reaches Judy Johnson and the Homestead Grace. And Johnson recalls how he had never even seen him play, but every day, word of his exploits would splash across the newspaper. Josh hit a ball 500 feet here, 400 feet there. 
The Graves had already, uh, they already had two capable catchers on their roster in Buck Ewing and Vic Harris. So they didn't immediately pursue Gibson on July 25th, 1930. The legend goes like this. The Kansas City Monarchs, they came to Pittsburgh to play an exhibition game versus the Graves. Uh, Josh is in the crowd watching the game. Apparently, Monarchs owner, a Mr. J.L. Wilkinson, he had like this portable lighting system that he and his team would tow around the country, you know, to maximize revenue streams. Now, the story goes, Negro Leagues legend Joe Williams was catching for the Graves that night. He lost the ball in those lights, and he broke a finger. The Monarchs already had Vic Harris in the outfield that night, so Monarchs manager, come posing, he called Josh out of the stands, and he asked him if he wanted to catch the rest of the game. And, as I said in the beginning, these are those apocryphal moments and, you know, and stories I mentioned in the beginning of the show. It's memory fixed with myth and a few facts, but there really is no other transcribed definitive account of how Josh first linked up with the Homestead Grays besides this. So, this is what it is. He went hitless that night, but he was clean behind the dish, and he remained with the Grays for the rest of 1930. Over his career and years after, there are several opinions about his defensive capabilities. My friend, Mr. Kendrick, whose credibility on these things is beyond reproach, he swears by Josh's defensive game. Others who saw him say he was above average, but not on the level of a Biz Mackey or Roy Campanella or even someone like Bruce Petway. But, regardless of of his ability as a backstop, Josh could hit and he could flex power and drop dog. This is indisputable fact. On September 27th, 1930, Gibson dropped the first of his legendary home runs, an estimated 460 feet into the left field bleachers in a game versus the New York Lincoln Giants. In 1931, The Homestead Grays played on a circuit with the Cuban Stars East, the Baltimore Black Sox, and the Philadelphia Hilldale Giants. The 19-year-old Gibson is now playing with stars like Oscar Charleston, Bill Foster, Smokey Joe Williams, Double Duty Radcliffe, and the list goes on. Within league play that year, Josh Slugs, 545 with 10 home runs and 132 at-bats. In 1932, his old friend Gus Greenlee he entices Josh to come back to the still independent Crawfords to catch for some dude named uh, Satchel Page. This guy looks like he can pitch a little. So, Gibson accepts it, and it would be the very first time the two legends would be paired as battery mates. Together, those two, they would go on to dominate exhibitions together around the world against a wide array of teams. Some would say Josh dropped 72 home runs that year, although only five are recorded in baseball reference. And, you know, with these incomplete records, unregulated ballparks, fence distances, and a very wide span of exhibition pitching talent, the exact number of home runs has become secondary to the fact that Gibson by now is an elite game-changing power bat. 
He began barnstorming throughout Puerto Rico. And he played in many exhibition games for the Santurce Congrejos for a reported $250 a month. And folks, $250 in 1933. That's worth $5,700 a month in today's 2022 economy. Later in 1933, he returns to the Crawfords in the new Negro National League through 1936. The 1934 season saw another epic blast at Yankee Stadium. The one that Jack Marshall swears left the confines of the house that Ruth built. Negro League's giant star, Sam Jethro, he once famously said, If someone told me that Josh hit a ball a mile away, I would believe it. Gibson, on the other hand, always poo-pooed the suggestion that he cleared the stadium, always maintaining that it only reached the center field bleachers. Not only was he a powerful man, but he was a modest man as well. Josh drew crowds wherever he went. Because of his strapping build and boyish look, uh, he had a boyish face, women of all races were crazy about him. And the hotels and restaurants, everyone would approach him as he was kind, patient, confident. And to a man, it was agreed. Josh never, never let his celebrity status swell his head. And after the 1936 season, when he was credited with 84 home runs, albeit only six in Negro National League play, Gibson goes back to the Caribbean and Cuban Winter Leagues for the 1936-37 and 37 seasons. And upon re- returning to America, the Crawfords are now strapped for cash. So they sell Gibson's contract back to the Grays for $2,500 and two players. A Pepper Bassett and a Harry Spearman. Uh, it's also worth noting that $2,500 in 1937, it's worth about $51,000 today. $51,000 today in 2022. So, uh, they sent Josh Gibson to the Grays for $2,500, which is worth about $51,000 today. And they sent two players, Pepper Bass and Harry Spearman, uh, back to the Crawfords. And Gibson spent part of that season with Homestead hitting 392 with 12 home runs and only 97 at-bats. The other part of the season, he's working for Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo. He's hitting 453 and leading the Dominican League in RBIs and triples. And we actually talked about that 1937 season uh, in the Dominican, and our baseball in the Dominican episode here at Backwards K-Pod. Go to any of your podcast platforms and check that out, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to dig into those archive shows, and you'll see uh, baseball in the Dominican Republic on that list. Now, Gibson moves back and forth between Pittsburgh and Cuban in the ensuing years of 1937 to 1940. And I was able to find a 1967 Sporting News article where they credit Josh with a 580-foot blast and a Negro uh, National Negro League game three decades earlier that hit the landing in front of the 161st Street Elevated Railway, railway in the Bronx. Uh, the various uncorroborated distances are fuel for, da- for doubters, no, no, no doubt. About the facts... Uh, you know, the facts are he had prodigious power. And, but perhaps these doubters, 
let, let me be objective here. Perhaps it's fair. Perhaps it ain't. Theoretically, let's say Gibson didn't hit balls 600 or 700 feet. Perhaps they were only 400 or 500 feet. Maybe even shorter for argument's sake. Well, the indisputable fact remains that Gibson was hitting the ball further than any of his Negro League counterparts, as well as his Major League counterparts of the day. And again, for me, the actual distance is irrelevant. He's putting balls where only Ruth can at this point. In 1937 and 1938, Gibson batted 342 for Havana in the Cuban League Winter Ball uh, League. In 1938, he hit 364 with 10 home runs and fewer than 100 at bats. Uh, before he moves on, he hits 380 in Puerto Rico. So he's basically traveling north and South America and he's abusing pitchers and getting paid. In 1940, Josh plays for the Veracruz Azules, the Blues, the Veracruz Blues in the Mexican League. He then returns to Puerto Rico for Winter League uh, Baseball. He batted 480, and he hit a home run estimated at 600 feet. In 1941, Gibson returns to Mexico, and he absolutely demolishes league pitching to a tune of 33 home runs, 124 RBIs, with a 374 batting average, and a slugging percentage of 754. 75 walks, and he only struck out 25 times. His 124 RBI total is still the 19th highest single season RBI total in Mexican Baseball League history today. And Josh returns to Composi and the Homestead Graves for the 1942 season. On January 1st, 1943, he suffered a seizure and lost consciousness at his home. And while he recuperated at St. Francis Hospital outside of Pittsburgh, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Now, Josh tried his best to keep a lid on his condition. For the rest of his career. While every day the newspapers. They're reporting that he's suffering from like this nervous breakdown. And that same year his father Mark died. Which well it added tragedy tragedy to turmoil. But Josh enjoyed one of his best seasons in 1943. Although he was becoming increasingly reliant on alcohol and weed. He was lethal. In 43. Uh, at the age of 31, he bats 46, 12 dongs, 22 doubles in front of record crowds. He amazed fans in the nation's capital when he hit more home runs over the left and center field wall than the entire American League did that year. And Gibson began to have horrible headaches, and he began showing an increase in weight and erratic behavior. But his production. Well, it's still top shelf liquor. He led Homestead to another crown in 1945, batting 323. And according to baseball reference, he smashed a 440-point home run at Yankee Stadium, a 457-foot bomb in Pittsburgh, a 500-foot shot at Sportsman Park in St. Louis, as well as a ball that cleared the roof at Shy Park in Filthy. Even until his last breath, Josh Gibson was the fucking man. On January 20th, 1947, just mere months before Jackie Robinson would smash the color line, 
Gibson collapsed in an unconscious heap. Ten minutes later, he awoke, and like this moment of lucidity, then he laid back down, and he died at the young age of 35 years old. Gibson lay in state for three days at a funeral home, and then three more days at the home of Margaret Mason, his former mother-in-law. His funeral was at the same Macedonia Baptist Church that he had married Helen all those years ago. And the people literally lined up for a half mile to pay their final respects. For his official career, and I'm using buddy ear quotation marks around the word official here, folks. Josh Gibson hit 107 home runs, batted 350. His Grays won nine consecutive league pennants at one point, And he played on too many all-star barnstorming teams to even count. Unofficially, again, bunny ears. Uh, Josh probably homered close to 900 times in all. Some of the media have tried to portray Josh as this guy who died of a broken heart because he never got to reach his MLB dream. But Gibson's son, Josh Jr., used to bristle at that notion. And, you know, he said it pissed him off when people would say that. My father never felt sorry for himself, nor was he one to brood over something that he had no control of. Just stop. It's not true. Baseball owner and innovator Bill Beck once said, Josh Gibson is worth at least two Yogi Berra's. Gibson's plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame and credits him with almost 800 home runs. But it is the testimony of his peers that hold weight with me. Baseball legend Monty Irvin once said, I played with Willie Mays and I played against Hank Aaron. Those guys are tremendous players. I love them both. But they're no Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson was elected into Cooperstown in 1972 with an inaugural induction it was the inaugural induction of former Negro League stars. And, folks, I think that's where we're going to end this Josh Gibson story. I want to make sure I got it all to you. Uh, if you're interested to know more about Josh Gibson, then I implore you to get after it. A great movie I recommend is Soul of the Game, starring Mario Van Peebles as Jackie Robinson. Delroy Lindo as Satchel Page and Michael T. Williamson as the great Josh Gibson. That movie is called Soul of the Game. I highly recommend it. I think I've recommended it on my show before. But uh, yeah, you should definitely see that movie. Michael T. Williams, he does a great uh, Josh Gibson. He plays the shit out of that character. Uh, you can also check out Part 5 of Ken Burns' baseball documentary, Sha- uh, Shadow Ball. And they get into Josh's life. And if you need a book, check out Mark Rabowski's Josh Gibson, The Power and the Darkness. That's Mark Rabowski's Josh Gibson, The Power and the Darkness. And last but not least, you can always check out my interview with Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick. We touch on a whole lot of Negro Leagues baseball, and that's under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. By all means, go out there and check it out. So, yeah, Josh Gibson. And look, to me, that's a good start to collecting 
these Negro League icons. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy presenting a story to you. Our Twitter handle, our Twitter Twitter handle is at back underscore k underscore podcast. You can email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com or you can always find them, find me on Facebook and the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private group page. So, with Josh Gibson in a book, I chop one head off the baseball hydra and two more appear. With Gibson in the rearview mirror, I now turn my attention to next week and the pride of San Diego, the greatest player in Padres history, Mr. Padre himself. I'm talking Tony Gwynn. Man, oh man, I feel like backwards K-Pod is a runaway freight train at this time. I mean, you look at my catalog. That's like a Jay-Z catalog, baby. Game changer shit. It's top of the fucking rotation. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. But look, Tony Gwynn, that's another show for another podcast here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers... And their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting by the TV, they got their nose and their phone looking bored AF. By all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless. And win the day.